Welcome back to Weekly Specials. I'm Will Gadara, your host, and I'm excited to have you here. I was talking to Aaron Ginsberg the other day. Aaron is the managing partner with us at the Welcome Conference, and he basically runs the show. And listen, the Welcome Conference, we are pivoting like everyone else's. We're trying to figure out where we can make impact, how we can use our platform to affect positive change, how we can support our industry while at the same time playing our role and making it a better industry. And so we're pivoting the conference this year. It was meant to happen in June in person. It obviously didn't. And we're trying to figure out how we can still bring it to life because this year, the one where it will be the hardest to create community through something like a conference. It's also become clear that this year is the most important year to have a conference. Our industry needs inspiration and motivation. And I think we all agree that our gas tanks need filling. But anytime you're doing something different than what you've normally done, while at the same time trying to make it special and excellent and hospitable and creative, it's hard. It's a heavy lift. And there was a moment where Aaron and I were on the phone and we were feeling a bit overwhelmed. There's a lot to do to bring this idea to life and not nearly enough time. And I was reminded of a quote that was on a plaque that sat next to my bed as a kid. The same quote that I printed on a card and gave to every single person that came to work at 11 Madison Park and Nomad over the course of many, many years that said, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? The whole idea of that quote is that you need to dream big. A lot of people are so fearful of answering that question honestly for fear that if they say it out loud and they don't make it happen, that they'll let themselves or the people around them down. But if you're not ambitious to say audacious goals out loud, you'll never accomplish them. And so it was brought to me during that conversation, again, you know, there's those things that you need to be reminded of no matter how many times you've said them, because those are the very things that will help get you through challenging times. Because yeah, we have a ton of work and it's super overwhelming and our timeline is short. But if we work hard enough, if we believe in ourselves enough, we'll make it happen. I know there's a lot of people in our industry, so many of the people that I call my dearest friends who are facing something similar. They know what right looks like. There is a long, long road ahead, but they've come up with outrageous and inspiring ideas to help get their restaurants through these times. They just feel overwhelmed by how much it's going to take to bring those ideas to life. Running restaurants has never been easy. We have done things that feel impossible. And I believe that we can all do more of those things. And so I believe in us. I believe in you. And I'm excited to see all of the awesome stuff that we collectively do in the months to come. We have a fun show today, so we're going to jump right into it. If you like this show, you want to stay in touch or learn more, visit us at welcomeconference.org or on Instagram at Welcome Conference. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. Do, 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 do. Weekly Specials. Go 
good news coming at you. The weekly specials. Do, 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 do. Okay, joining me today is a good friend from, man, a long time ago, uh, long Garrett time. Oliver. Long, long time. Garrett Oliver is the renowned uh, brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery, a James Beard Award winner, an acclaimed author, and more. Garrett and I met in my early days working in restaurants in New York City, and no one cared about 11 Madison Park and no one knew who I was. And for me, Brooklyn Brewery and Garrett Oliver were, were like heroes. And I had this dream of collaborating with them on a couple beer projects. And I remember reaching out to him, honestly, with zero hope that he would say yes. I thought it was going to be one of those things where I asked, he goes, who the hell are you? Get out of my way. I'm busy. But I think one of the beautiful things about Garrett, and it's only become more clear in in the last month or so is that he believes in people. He believes in creativity. He believes in making dreams come true. And also he just likes making cool shit happen. <laughs> that's, a, that's the main thing. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, can't, you, you can't make cool shit happen unless you make people happy. Wait, Carrie, I'm introducing you right now. Hold on. <laughs> He's also recently uh, the creator of the Michael Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling, which will offer scholarship opportunities to Black and Indigenous people of color to help further their education in the field. He's just an awesome guy, a good friend to have a beer with, share stories with, and I'm really happy that you and I get some time together today. So Garrett Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's good to be here. Good to see you. Good to see you in a t-shirt. You I'll know, tell you I, what. Everybody can't see, but I'm, we're seeing each other in t-shirts. You know, <laughs> people don't see. I used to see you in a t-shirt back in the day, but not so much recently. <laughs> so, all right. I guess I, I want to start in the restaurant business. COVID has hit us really, really hard. And the fact that we're just not open. But I feel like there's this misnomer that anyone that sells anyone with alcohol in it has just been destroying it over the past three months. And... <laughs> like, and I, I just, I'd like to like literally hear it from the source. How has this whole thing affected you, the craft beer industry at large? Kind of what's been your experience? Well, our experience at Brooklyn Brewery is certainly that we index heavily as a draft brand, right? So it's not that you're not going to see us in supermarkets. You're not going to see us in a bodega. You will. But coming out of New York City, where people don't shop as much in big box supermarkets as they do in other parts of the country, we were always a powerful draft brand, up to 60, 70% of sales on draft in some countries, you know, and maybe 55 to 60% overall. And that was a great advantage to us. You know, you go into a bar, you're one of eight to 15 or 20 competitors on draft lines. And sure, we played in the supermarkets and people went looking for us, they'd find us. But when draft suddenly disappears, then, okay, all your business on draft goes away. So that means that you are now down 60%, right? Yes. You got 40% left. Well, people say, well, people go looking for your beer now in the supermarket. Well, the supermarket aisle has hundreds and hundreds of beers in it. So you are not competing on a playing field of a bar or restaurant with 16 draft lines. You are now competing against everybody, including the big guys. Now, here's the thing that people don't know about supermarkets. Supermarkets are not run by supermarkets. 
supermarkets are run by suppliers. So when you see somebody stacking cereal in the aisle, it is not a supermarket employee. It is somebody from the cereal company. And in these things, there's what's called the category manager. And the category manager is somebody who's been appointed, a company that's been appointed to basically run the beer department for them, to run the section. Sure, somebody's ordering, but they'll decide like where on the shelf you sit, et cetera. And guess who the category managers are? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you know, guess what? Not us. So and wait, we, are, are you are you saying that the category managers actually work for the big guys or they just yes. work alongside them and they've been working no, together for, for, them. for them? You know, in many cases. And so, you know, uh, someone who knows better about these things can explain it all. But the important part is that between having all the competition in the aisle at once, big supermarket brands, yes, some people are stocking up more heavily on Brooklyn Lager. But all the things that make Brooklyn Brewery, the interesting esoteric brands, all of our big barrel program, all the things that make us, us, disappears. So it's like if you're an actor and you've done a lot of really interesting work and you've done also, say you've done like one or two Avengers films, they're like, okay, we're just going to take the Avengers films now and the rest of your career disappears and will never be seen again. So now, in many cases... Even what you were selling in the supermarket is now reduced because everybody is going to the supermarket to get what they're looking for, and they're thinking in a different fashion than they were before. They're stocking up. Nobody wants to go to the supermarket three times a week the way a lot of New Yorkers might just stop by, just stop by. Nothing is casual. And so at the outset, we were down, we're in 35 countries. A lot of people don't realize that Brooklyn Brewery is a very international brand. We actually sell slightly more beer outside the country than we sell in the United States. Wow. That kind of happened a few years ago where we've been very active overseas. We had sister breweries in Norway, Sweden, Lithuania, through other partnerships in Korea, etc. And so all of this goes down worldwide. We're down 70 something percent. And so at this point, Markets in which we are down, say, 50 to 40 to 50 percent are the good ones. Yeah. You know, and as a result of that, you know, we've had uh, necessary layoffs. You can't carry all the same carrying costs with 50 percent of your income gone. Our costs have gone up. You know, our, our timelines for delivery of materials, everything, as you know, is so much harder. And so now... You have a draft environment. There are some restaurants that are open and they're either selling draft to go out the door or maybe they have a backyard or whatever else. And really, they're only going to feature like a few beers. No one's going to run 16 draft lines now. Yeah. Right. So they want two draft lines. Wait, just to make sure for, for people that aren't familiar with, that's an obvious statement to me. But why would people, when they're slower, not have as many draft lines? Yeah, because beer is a fresh product. It needs to turn. If you have a keg on for more than two or three weeks, that's starting not to taste as good. You've breached the keg. You know, the external environment starts interacting with it. It sits in the lines. It's not as good. So when you have much slower business, you have 16 draft lines. That means it might take you two or three months to serve out each of those kegs. That's not good. So in every situation, from the distributor to the retailer, everybody wants less of everything. If you used to have... We have 30 different beers that come out every year. 
You used to have 30, now we want five. And so all the fun stuff that you used to do, look at all the guys in the restaurant business who came to do really interesting, brilliant work and are now producing a burger where they resisted that burger for so many years, you know, and they think they didn't need it because we're doing this, we're doing that, and here's our lobster bisque and whatever else, and now you got to sling that burger. We're in a similar position and trying to get back the rest of us. It's like we got like limbs cut off and we want to get those back and we have to stabilize the business that we have. And a lot of a lot of small brewers are in a similar situation. At least we are not totally beholden to a taproom model. If you were running a taproom model and basically, you know, 70% of your business was people showing up and drinking beer on your location. Well, it's, well, it's the same model as a restaurant at that point. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're doing, yeah, at least you can sell beer going out the door. And there are breweries like Other Half where people are used to lining up and getting their beer in cans. But nobody even really wants to necessarily wait on a line anymore. Everybody's freaked out. And I don't know how Other Half or other breweries are doing. But I'll say that for breweries right now that are not Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, Heineken, et cetera, et cetera, this is very, very rough. But what it does mean, of course, is that all their competition has hobbled. And the thing that they do best, which is selling beer to supermarkets and huge venues, they're like golden. Yeah. It's like, hey, all the stadiums are closed. So, you know, they kind of control those and they don't have that grip and other venues. But the supermarket, which is where 80% or something of American beer is bought, they have a, an iron grip on that. And that means that business is booming. So on the other side of this, I think one of the beautiful things that's happened in America over the past 20 years is we don't just drink Budweiser anymore. We drink all these amazing beers and there's probably going to be more Budweiser and less of those amazing beers on the other side of this than there was when we went into it. Yeah, you kill off the competition and, you know, you end up possibly returning to a monoculture, which, you know, is what we're all fighting against. And so... A lot of like little mom and pops are not going to be able to survive this just as they will not be able to in the restaurant business. Yeah. You know, it's really distressing because we could be basically set back 15 years, 20 years. The American craft brewing industry was the, or has been the wonder of the world, you know, the creative font for everybody everywhere. And I can easily remember the days when, you know, the idea of being an American brewer was just like, funny <laughs> like it's a ridiculous idea it's like oh that's cute you like you you brew beer i remember having those conversations with you like 15 years ago yeah and it's interesting because you know this hasn't even occurred to me the challenge right now is twofold okay obviously economic that's probably the most significant one with the with the ramifications of layoffs and uncertainty and all of that but i think also what you're talking about is the creative side when i was talking about before you and i collaborated I think our first collaboration was the barrel-aged beers that we did in the Pappy yeah. Van Winkle barrels. Yeah. Nine pin and... It was um, another like upstate New York reference. No, something with 11, whatever it was. Yeah. But, but it's true. There's a local. lot of... Local 11, local 11. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, of course. There's a lot of stuff that all of us do in our jobs that are the less fun part of our jobs. 
And it's the creative stuff, the little one-off things where you get to have fun and flex a little bit that fill our gas tanks such that we have the energy to take on those things. And so you're talking about like, it's really hard and my gas tank is less full because I don't have all the fun creative projects to fuel me to throw myself at those other things. No, basically, you're in a situation where, you know, it's like the music business and the A&R man comes and says, we want you to just shut up and play the hits. Yeah. You know, it's like you know, nothing but the hits. We don't want to hear any of like, I know that you just spent three months in Japan and you've been playing with Japanese musicians. You've learned so much, whatever else. Fuck that. Like, we don't want to hear about that. You need to just go straight down the line and yeah. we're in trouble. You need to sell as much, you know, as you can. And so for restaurateurs, for brewers, for everybody... All the stuff that got you up in the morning goes away and you're just in fight or flight mode. Now, I'm pushing back against that because I think that we will return to some sort of normality and I'm putting stuff down like in barrels, et cetera, that as we emerge into a different world are going to be ready. We are now doing direct-to-consumer, which we never did before. Lots of uh, breweries did direct-to-consumer. You know, So if you look at the breweries in, uh, in New York City, Many of them have had, you know, selling cans like out the front door. We never did that, you know, because we, we have so many customers around us. You know, you don't want, you're in a neighborhood and you got 25, 30 accounts right near you. And now you have a beer that might not even be available to them that you're selling out the front door and is causing excitement. That causes jealousy. It causes you're competing with your own customers. Yes. You know, so we were like, okay, we're going to sacrifice that part of the business for the loyalty of our friends who are selling our beer. But now it's the Wild West. You know? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, if you, if you don't have direct-to-consumer, you're basically just unilaterally disarming. You yeah. know, and what, no one's coming to see you. Our tap room, which had 2,000 visitors a week, many of them tourists are closed, and there are no tourists. Yeah. We don't even have any foot traffic on the street anymore in Williamsburg, which used to be like Disneyland on uh, on Friday and Saturday nights. It's crazy. Hey. Well, thank you for sharing all that. You know, one of the things that we've we've talked about a lot, and I think it's a hallmark of anyone in our industry, and I'm, I'm talking about like our extended industry. It's a business full of doers. Like everyone is having a really hard time right now. Sales are down, we're struggling, having to pivot, figure out new ways to stay alive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the thing that constantly amazes me is in the industry that's been the most hard hit, it's also the industry that's stepping up the most to do good. Whether it's restaurants keeping their kitchens open in spite of the fact that they're losing money every month and feeding frontline workers or people in need, or, I mean, the stories go on forever. Jose Andres, Jose Andres. Yeah. (laughs) And then we're just talking about also needing to fill our gas tanks by doing things that are fulfilling. And I I think both of those, when I think about them, it makes me think of, of the Michael Jackson Foundation that you just started. And so I'd love to just hear what it is, why you created it, what's the response been? It's been a very interesting couple of months. I mean, so we can go back. I mean, first of all, I've had some interesting conversations with people where they said, well, you know, you never spoke about racial issues before. And they would take this to mean that, like, I had never suffered, you know, from racism or anything like that. I think that many of us struggle in our day-to-day careers simply to be seen as professionals, to be known for their work 
and to not have other distractions. You know, and in the United States, race is always at least a distraction. But I didn't speak on it because it was like, well, this is the background radiation of, of, of everything. So about five years ago, a writer from Thrillist named Dave Infante wrote an article called Why Are There Almost No Black People in Craft Beer? He called me. I was in Slovenia in the vineyards. And he calls and he says he wants to do this article. And he, you know, I talked to him and he said, like, I want to know whether craft beer is a racism problem. And I said, well, with all due respect, I think you're asking the wrong question. You know, have you noticed that there are no black people in your newsroom? Have you noticed that there are no black people in the restaurants that you visit? Have you noticed that there are no black people in the kitchen who are not the dishwashers? Have you noticed that there are no black people in your restaurant as customers? Have you noticed America? Do you understand where it is that you are? Because you have to understand that that is a stupid question. Sorry, but that's a stupid question. Craft beer is in America and we live in a segregated society. There is buying power, large buying power, you know, in the African-American community but you do not see them in the restaurants. You know, if I go into pick anybody's restaurant at a even semi-high end and walk in the door, there is a very good chance I may be the only black person in the restaurant. And people say, well, I guess it's those people don't like that food or maybe they don't have the money or, 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 and that's not it. And so it's such a complex question that I said, I, I can't do this interview. You need to go and read something, educate yourself on the country that you actually live in. And, you know, read, at, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates' big book was out then, Between the World and Me. And I said, read that and come back and I'll talk to you. A few months later, that article, which I thought entirely missed the point, won the James Beard Award, which was, you know, telling. Yeah. So fast forward to now, several Were, months ago. Did you end up being talked about in the article in spite of the fact that you didn't contribute? Yes. And this is interesting because it loops back around to the present. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to it because it's interesting how this is uh, developed. So several months ago, you know, maybe in the fall, Tom Potter, who was one of the founders of Brooklyn Brewery, later ran the AIWF. I don't know if you remember the American Institute of Wine and Food. They used yeah. to do a lot of big events in the 90s. They had raised a fund called the Michael Jackson Fund. And for those who don't know, Michael Jackson, obviously not the Michael Jackson that most people are thinking of, was the by far the greatest writer in two areas, both whiskey, where he remains the top writer of all time, and beer, where he remains the top writer of all time. More than 13 million books sold in 20 languages, just the basically in both areas known essentially as God. Is the source. Uh, yeah, he's the source. He basically gave us the taxonomy of beer that we understand today. When we talk about Flanders Red Ales or Saisons or whatever else. He put all that on the map. There would not be an American craft brewing industry without Michael's work, or at least it wouldn't look anything like it looks right now. And he wrote similarly, you know, about whiskey. And he was one of my best friends. I was one of a few family members, one, a few people besides family members who spoke at his funeral. And he asked that I did because he knew that he was, you know, he was going and so I feel like I'm, you know, trying to take on something of that mantle because he said that he wanted me to. And, you know, he was my friend and a great man. 
And this fund came and the American Institute of Wine and Food basically wound up. And Tom said to me, we got this Michael Jackson fund. It's got $30,000 in it. It's been sitting moribund for years. I want to wrap this up and we'll give away the scholarships. You know, so maybe eight scholarships for $4,000 a piece and we'll be done with it. Maybe we'll put it through a cooking school. And I said, I'm not going to be involved with this unless it's aimed the direction of people of color. And at first, there was some pushback or, well, can't, this is going to be difficult. Can't we do it some other way? But I was like, no, we can't do it some other way. I've basically, I've decided that I'm going to use the chair that I sit in to have some effect on this situation, which hasn't changed in 30 years. I have not, in 30 years of working in brewing, ever had a single African-American come to me looking for a brewing job. None. I have employed Haitians, Iraqis, Afghanis, Eritreans, people coming through refugee agencies, et cetera, through different paths. But you know the way it is in the kitchen. You know, it's like my attitude towards our work, and we operate at a high level, and we don't apologize for that, is we can't have any amateurs. You know, know, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not beanbag. You walk in there you know, and you don't know what you're doing, when you make a mistake, you don't ruin a piece of fish. You either you kill somebody or you ruin a $50,000 tank of beer. Like we need professionals. And so the people that I wanted to see, I basically said, if you do not come in here carrying the flaming sort of truth, I don't want to know you. I don't want to see you. You can't work for me. It's like, you need to be here to do the thing that we do and feel it like God himself, yes. you know? And I want to see the fire shining out of your eyes should blind me. And that's what I want to see. It's one of and the things, was, I'm sorry, I see to jump in because it's one of the things I feel like I've always connected with you on is that you and I can both have a good time. We can both like go out and have some drinks yeah. and just relax. But when it's go time. It's go time. It's and I'll tell time. you what, like, and I'm like, I don't want, I want only us around us. And we are really, really fucking serious. We do not play. We take quality at the highest level. And we're like, no, we don't have time for this or that. However, we took in interns that were going through brewing school. If you made a commitment to brewing, I'll show you everything. And I will go out of my way. No, you can't help me. You know, even by working for free, you can't help me. Any more that I could help in the kitchen of a great restaurant on Saturday night. No matter how good a cook I am at home, you can't help anybody. You're useless. You're in the way. This is my attitude. However, what that produced was zero African-American applicants in 30 years, 0.6% of brewing staffs in the United States are African-American in a country that has 14% black people. What is wrong with this picture? So I started to change my mind and I blamed, I guess, that number, 0.6%, it must have to do with somebody else. I mean, I've been here all along. People have seen me. I've been on everything from Martha Stewart to Emerald Live back in the 90s. I've been all the newspapers. You can't miss me. However, my level of representation was not sufficient to actually change anything. Just being Garrett Oliver doesn't do anything for anybody. I thought that it did. And people told me, well, I just thought you were unreachable. You're up there on this pedestal. I didn't think that you were a person that I could talk to. And I was like, 
who the hell do you think you could talk to? Like, what are you talking about? But you get to a point where you become a prince of the church and you can no longer see what you look like, what your relationship is to what's going on. And there was a beer festival called Fresh Fest that happens in Pittsburgh. It would be happening about now, if not for COVID. And the first year they said, we're running an African-American beer festival. Now, I will tell you my first reaction to that was, why do we need an African-American beer festival? What's wrong with the regular beer festival? Everybody's nice. Why don't you just come to that? I mean, it sounds like segregation. Why would we want segregation? We fought against segregation. Separate but equal. I don't, I don't want separate but equal. I want to go to a beer festival and we just be us. But, you know, I wasn't taking a number of things into account. Plus, it was on Saturday. And you know the way this works. It's Saturday. <laughs> Somebody invites you to a thing on Saturday in August, right? And you agree in March. And then four or five days before that date. And then it's Tuesday. Says, hey, man. Yeah, hey, man. I got, like, I got a beach house in the Hamptons. And, like, all my friends are coming out for the weekend. We love to have you. And you're like, fuck, fuck. I just said I was going to go to a beer festival on Saturday in Pittsburgh. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> so I'm like, no. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to work all the time. But last year I went. And I have to say, it was an absolutely life-changing experience. 3,000 completely geeked out, dyed-in-the-wool, diehard craft beer fans, 75% of them black. I had never, ever, ever, ever seen anything like this in my life. And I have to say, it was beautiful. And this was not a segregated beer festival. This was, in fact, the most integrated beer festival I'd ever seen because there was never 25 or 30% of anybody else at any of the other festivals. You know, they would be 80, 85, 90% white, and then a smattering of brown people. And it was just like, well, that's the way it is. And so I knew that I love craft beer, but even I didn't know how many black people love craft beer because you didn't see them. And suddenly they were all there at once and there were lots of women and there were like tons of gay people and trans people and whatever else. And nobody had any problems. Anybody else was this massive love in people were crying. They were crying all over the place, just out of sheer joy of being there with each other. I had never, ever, ever seen. I had seen that once at a brewing conference that I ran where brewers were crying just the beauty of being in the room with each other. But I mean, I haven't that, been to many a, beer festivals, but you don't. It's not how I picture no, a beer no, festival that no, everyone's crying. No. Yeah, and but <laughs> good, good tears, obviously. You know, yeah. I was like, "Wow, look how beautiful this is! Look how vibrant, and look how much better our industry would be if all these people were actually able to get into it." And I realized, like, I'm actually one of the barriers. I'm one of the barriers. I'm a gatekeeper sitting there saying, "You have to." have it risen to this level before you can work for me. Well, how is that ever going to happen with 0.6% of people? It's like, it's never going to happen. And most brewers in the United States, the breweries have only been going for a few years. And so, you know, I, I, it's I interesting. Decided, like, what will I actually do with the chair? I've arrived, you know, you can decide for yourself where I sit, but I have a position you know, and I have a voice and people will take my phone calls and they will listen when I speak. And I put something out on Twitter where I talked about, I had helicopters hanging over my 
roof every day from the protests. And I put out a, a, a thread on Twitter where I talked about what it was like growing up. And the fact that when me and my brother were little kids one day, we were playing hops and robbers inside our house in Queens at night with flashlights. And my dad came downstairs and he said, he turned the lights on. He said, do not ever, ever, ever turn on a flashlight in this house. The police will come. They will bust the door down and they will shoot us all like dogs right here in our living room. And when, when, and when, and when me and your mom come downstairs, they're going to shoot us too. You know, it's like, you cannot ever do anything like that. And this is the actual world. This is the world that I live in, where if I go out jogging, somebody might shoot me, you know, because I look like a threat. And your James Beard Award and all your medals and honors and whatever else will not save you from America. And I had never said anything like that before. It was retweeted thousands of times. And I started thinking about, well, what am I going to do? And this foundation, I took the fund and I had already been thinking about it, but I was taking 12 international trips a year. I had like, how am I going to find the time to do this? And suddenly I'm stuck in my house and I can't go anywhere. And I'm like, and this is a moment where people are actually thinking about race and I realized that, you know, if I don't do this now, if I don't help people now, I'm never going to do it. And everything that I've got will actually be empty because I will never have actually helped everybody. I've thrown conferences for Swedes. I've thrown conferences for Norwegians. I've taught tons of British people, but I have not done anything specifically for African-Americans. And now that I see how many of them are, are here... I'm just going to say, okay, let me reverse the whole situation. I dedicate a large amount of my time to seeing what I can do to bring you into the fold. And the foundation is very simple. The only thing really that it does is two things. It provides scholarships for technical education and brewing and distilling. These are the qualifications that we look for at a place like Brooklyn Brewery. These are the courses out of which we hire people like American Brewers Guild, Master Brewers Association, you know, UC Davis, et cetera, the things that you want to see on a resume. Yeah. And then provides you with a person of color who is a mentor for you, assigned. If you don't like them, you work something else out. But, you know, you have a mentor. So you have somebody to talk to who's been through your experience, hopefully only a few years ago, not like me 30 years ago, somebody to talk to who is looking out for you as you come up through this thing. And we basically give you the sort of things that other people have had. Because when some of these courses cost $10,000, the average black family in the United States has one-tenth, one-tenth of the assets of the average white family, which means that almost nobody's got $10,000. Yeah. When you go into debt, I know lots of people are in debt from education in the United States, but when you go into debt, as a black family, the likelihood is there is no money. There will be no money when the house gets sold. If, there, if you own a house, nobody you know has any money. This is the effects you know, of racism in America, 10%. We have 10% of what other people have. And so I'm just trying to level the playing field so that people with talent 
can bring themselves up through this industry. And then when they get there, we're going to expect them to turn around and mentor somebody who's coming up behind them. Drop the ladder, pass it along. And there are many, many paths into brewing. This is only one. But what I'm doing is I'm, t- I'm toggling something that I'm 100% sure will work. Yes. Because if you see someone's gone through American Brewers Guild, you're going to take them seriously. Well, you've been hiring more people than almost anyone in America to do this. Yeah. So you know what you're looking for. So just make sure for. they have that. They may have many, many other qualities and skills, but I know that this one works. Yeah. And it's not only one course, it's many courses, but I'm providing them with that and with some support. And then there are a lot of other people doing great work who can provide other things, which we're, going, we're, we're keeping it very simple. I think is always the best way to actually make impact. You know, what you were saying before, obviously this has been a time of tremendous reflection. And I look at 11 Madison Park, where I think we had more gender diversity and a little bit more racial diversity than some other restaurants of our caliber, but not great at all, full stop. And similarly, everyone is well-intentioned and it's very easy to say, well, not that many people come in to interview or... I do need people to have a certain amount of experience. And then I think about, hold on, I'm a really good teacher. It's one of the things I'm good at. And you know how much it costs to open a restaurant and how much would it cost to add two extra weeks of training at the beginning such that you can actually hire people less experience who are just great human beings that you break the log jam of, to your point, if only 0.06 people of color work in breweries and you can only hire people that have experience. You're just, it's a situation that will be self-perpetuated forever. Yeah. And it um, looks normal to you. This, this, that's the, see, that's the problem. It looks yeah. normal. This is like the way we live. These are the people who show up in front of us and we're busy. We don't have time to think about, Hey, you know what? It'd be nicer if we had like more different kinds of people, you know, I mean, the, the, the next people under me have always been women you know, in my department, you yes. know, and they've been fully qualified, et cetera. But what if you never even allow anybody to become fully qualified? But also, like, none of us have ever accomplished anything of significance without deciding that we're going to do it. And there's never enough time to do anything, but you still decide something's important <laughs> to you, and then you make time to do it. Yeah. Well, what I say is that if, if diversity and inclusion are number 25 on your list of things to do today, you know, which is pretty normal for, then like, when do you get to, when do you ever get to number 25 on your list? You see, it stays at number 25 on your list until you move it up to number three, artificially in some way. You artificially boost it from here to there and say that today, beyond all these other things, this now goes to number three and it's on my front burner. It's a decision. Yeah, I love that. For anyone at home, how can people give to the foundation? Well, our uh, email, our uh, our website rather is www at no. the, the mjf.org. So t h e m j f dot org, and you'll see everything there. You'll see the scholarships there, named for Sir Jeff Palmer, who uh, is a great black professor and brewer out of uh, Scotland. And Nathan Green, you know, who was a very early distiller and the original master distiller for Jack Daniels. And under these scholarships, we'll be giving out these awards. There's a link to a GoFundMe. 
And then if you have greater means in your corporation or an individual who wants to make an even bigger difference, you can just get directly in touch with me at Garrett at the MJF.org and we'll sort some things out. We've had great outreach, you know, from keeping up with the emails and whatever else is, uh, has been a nearly impossible task, but, you know, in a good way, everybody from, from schools to breweries to individuals saying, what can I do? How can we help people who have, okay, I don't really have money, but I'm a, you know, I'm experienced microbiologist. I can teach class or whatever else. So out of this will probably spin eventually conferences and all kinds of other things. Right now, we want to be very focused and just do the one thing that we came to do, make yes. sure we're successful at the one thing and not take on the, you know, the dark side, if you like, which is usually ego. You can start metaphorically barrel aging beers later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it was very interesting talking to Sir Jeff, who's 80 years old, and I was on a Zoom call with him, which started at nine o'clock in Scotland, right? And went for two hours. And one of the things that he said to me, he said, like, I know that what you want to do is reach out to a dishwasher who's a craft beer fan, you know, in Bushwick and bring them up through a brewing education and place them in a brew house. And that would be great. And it would feel good. He's like, don't do that. Said, you know, you can do that 10 times. And out of 10 times, you're going to have five failures and five successes, because that's a very, very hard lift. And you don't know what you're doing yet because you haven't really done this. You have great ideas, but you haven't executed the ideas. Take somebody who started off as a dishwasher and then worked their way up to the bottling line or the kegging line, and then was trained to be a brewer, more or less by rote, but never actually got a formal education. So doesn't really understand what's happening in the brewery, doesn't understand the principles, the science, and everything else behind it. They can do the job, but they have no further job prospects because it requires that education. Take that person who's already working hard and dedicating themselves to it and attach a rocket booster to them. You know, take them up to a different level so that they can actually be head brewers or assistant head brewers and hire other people be mentors, and out of 10, get 10 successes. And then once you've got something under your belt, then turn around and try to work on bringing people up from lower levels on that totem pole. It was such good advice. And not only that, you know, he also said to me, you have it here as a scholarship, but it needs to be an award. It's a scholarship award. You know, these words often go together. You know, you have the MacArthur Award. It also comes with like a half million dollars or something. And it said many people that you're talking to, especially in the African-American community, they've never had a chance to win anything. They've never won anything. Yes. The idea of winning something to get an award is such a big deal for you know, your average person. And you can be so far up in yourself that you've forgotten what a big deal it is to win an award because you've won all the awards. Yes. You know, what awards can anybody give you now that are really going to be that meaningful? But just the simple thing of making it to an award, maybe having a ceremony, if you can do that, they, that their parents can come to and make it something to be proud of is really you know, important. And to be sitting there on a Zoom call with an 80-year-old man in Scotland 
schooling me like Yoda. I was just about to say, just schooling you. Know? you. <laughs> yeah, schooling me like Yoda in things that should have, like, here I am, I'm like, I'm gung-ho, I'm ready to do this work. And he's like, okay, you have good intentions, but your work is slightly off. And think about humans and like what you can actually do for humans and their minds, their psyches, their self-esteem, et cetera. And I was like, wow, wow. Yeah. Like just in two hours, I learned Did so I- much. I love that. I mean, like Danny Meyer, one of the greatest lessons I learned from him was the power of words, like choosing the right word and just that one nuance. Yeah. It's an award. And then also the power of celebration and creating moments around significant like inflection points in life. We were talking about creative projects being the things that fill gas tanks. When, when did you post that on, on Twitter? The thing I posted on Twitter was in May, and then I announced on July 6th that we would be starting up the Michael Jackson Foundation by July 15th, which turned out not to be true. (laughs) And I had to post later, you know, that like we just hadn't made it. It was like there's so much superstructure, you know, to building the web. It turns out like if you want to open a GoFundMe page, well, guess what? COVID. Guess what, you know, guess what a lot of people are doing during COVID? Yes, yes, yes. You know, so everything just moves slowly, slowly, slowly. And, you know, I was like, no, I said I'm going to do this thing by this day. And God damn it. Like, you know, my word is like absolute. And I had to just at a certain point say, you know, this is not happening on this day. It's going to happen five, six days later. Get over yourself. You know, it's like do your climb down in public. It wasn't as easy as you thought. And you thought that you could just roll up into this work, which plenty of other people have been doing, and you haven't been there. You're just going to roll up and just like snap your fingers and shit's just going to happen just like that. It's like, guess what, bucko? Well, I think the world is pretty forgiving about stuff like that right now and celebrates the vulnerability. But my my question was going to be, if that was then, today, how full is your gas tank? My gas tank is in a certain way fuller than ever. I, you know, I can feel, I feel the force flowing through me. Yes, I'm doing my, you know, my job job, but, you know, it, re- it rededicates a purpose to a particular thing that I know we can do. Like, this is not going to be a fire festival. It's actually really simple. You have a board. I've done board work. I was one of the founders for Slow Food USA me and Alice Waters and a few other people wrote the constitution for Slow Food USA. I've done this stuff before. I'm on the board of the Museum of Food and Drink, as you know. So I'm doing this kind of work all the time. I'm sure you're on many boards. And it's like, I understand how to do this. At the outset, you know, I announced from day one that my term as founder slash chair lasts for five years and not one moment more. And I will not rerun and I will not be the chair after five years you know, to sit on your perch and occupy it because it starts getting good to you, right? You know, you're yes. like, good, all this good work. And people are like, really, like it. and people are adoring me for like this good work that I'm doing, whatever else, the dark side this is. Yes. <laughs> you know, do the thing, set it up, get the fuck out of the way because there's going to be somebody coming up who's like 35, loaded for bear, smarter than you, and has got some connections. And then like help them out on the side. But you don't need to sit on the throne the entire time, you know, prepare to get out of the way at the beginning. Well, the dark side, I mean, I, I think everyone that does what we do struggles with this to varying extents is when you start succumbing too much to like external validation. 
and how much oh, weight yeah. you put on it. And the moment you're doing something for that, as opposed to doing it for the very reason you started it in the first place is the moment that it's time to take a step back. Yeah. Well, or at least to question yourself. I mean, I can't remember who said it and I'm paraphrasing, but it was, you know, somewhere out there saying, if you're doing something, you say that you're doing it to help black people. Let us put it to you this way. If no black person can eat it, spend it, use it to get a job, feed their family with it, advance their career with it, the thing that you're doing is actually for you. Yeah. So like, be very clear about what your intentions are because you can do a lot of stuff that's going to make you feel like a better person and you have, will have done nothing for the people that you believe that you're helping. And we all want to do something, you know, we've all been wanting to do something, but you know, I mean, it, it's taken people like Jose Andres to really show, you know, what it looks like when you really, really do something and where people can feel the work that you're doing directly. And so as we design the foundation, we've stripped it down to not so much cutesy shit for the rest of us, you know, do the damn job, do the damn job. You said you were going to do this for somebody, do the damn job, you know, and that's it. And then strip everything else away from it. It's work. It's work, you know, and if, if I'm ever going to do this work, I turned 58 a couple of days ago. If I'm ever going to do this work, when would I be doing it? This is the time. Okay, I loved my conversation with Garrett Oliver, as I'm sure you did too. I mean, just inspiring and uplifting and just one of my favorite people. Now, when we thought the interview was over, we just started talking again. And there were some awesome little nuggets where, I mean, he's such a beautiful man who speaks so articulately and we just thought it was unreasonable not to share this part with you too. So before we go, check out a little bit more of my conversation with Garrett Oliver. I love that. And I love you. And I'm so happy to get time with you, man. And happy birthday. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, and I asked you how full your gas tank was I don't know that I've ever come away from a conversation with you without my gas tank being a little bit more full than when we started it. And so I appreciate you. Well, it's very kind. And I've, I've watched what you've been doing with the uh, welcome conference, et cetera. And I've, you know, I've only seen some of the seminars and I, I, I haven't made it to the conferences yet, but you know, I think I've been really buoyed by just looking at, and it's a different thing than where I'm coming from, but I mean, it's all about fellowship or whatever you want to call it you know, hospitality, watching people who are driven like salmon swimming upstream to try to provide like a nice time for people, whether it is in the kitchen or it's in front of the house or it's whatever else, that that's, they're trying to find a way to do that and still keep the gas tank full, which is going to be very difficult for everybody. But I think that, you know, I look at what Greg Backstrom is doing over at, at Olmstead and what, you know, so many restaurants are doing. And I'm like, okay, their outlook on things is maybe a little different, you know, than what I'm doing. I'm not providing direct hospitality. But the fact of the matter is that in real life, most of the most important moments in your life, the greatest moments in your life happen in only two places. They happen either in bed or at the table. 
That is, that is, yeah. And all the rest, 15% is left for that beautiful nature walk that you took through the mountains and the trip to wherever and whatever else. But important moments, ones that stick with you for the rest of your life, that's it. It's in better at the table. And Americans don't make enough time for the table. You know, it's like the table, they know if you ask them the best moments of their life happen at the table, how much time are you spending at the table? How do you think about the table? Who is at your table? This is your life. This is your whole damn life, you know, is happening there. And you don't have time? What do you have time for? And the thing that we're trying to do as brewers is to make something that's worthy of your time at the table. You know, that's worthy of your time at the table. It's like you're gathering with friends, you're gathering with family. We want to make something that's worth it for you for those important times. Even if it's just like fucking around on a fishing boat and like that's a great time and that's your table today. Uh, you know, and that's your like little, your little thing that's happening or it's your family or whoever it is. Because, you know, we, we, we exist with you in the center of life. This is what we do. And we're not there doing what restaurants do. We're not doing hospitality per se, except in our own place. But to us, it's meaningful that we're, we're there with you when you're with your family and friends. It's the most important thing in the world. Yes. You know, so we take it really, really seriously. I thought we were done hearing really, really inspiring things from you. And then you drop. That's what we as brewers do. We try to create something worthy of your time at the table. Well, also, you know, in craft beer... I love that. <laughs> in, in craft beer, what I'm trying to do, all the books and whatever else really comes down to something pretty simple. I'm trying to give you something brand new to like, right? Yeah. When was the last time you found something brand new to like? And what I think of it is like, if you discover a craft beer, it's like discovering jazz or discovering baseball. Your uncle took you to your first baseball game or somebody played you your first Coltrane record. On that day a little door opens up. And if you step through it, on the other side of that door is a better life. <laughs> that, that, you know, you know, it's, a, it's a small moment, but it's a big deal. Yeah. And if, I mean, I remember where I was, who I was with when I finally understood Miles Davis. And that's meaningful. It sticks with you forever. I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from people saying, I went to some random beer tasting in like 1995 and it changed my life. You know, it like changed my life. Just that moment. And it's like, if I show you something brand new to like that you can have for virtually nothing really, and you can have it forever. Yeah. It's like, that's crazy. That's like, that's the best work aside from like, I don't know, like saving people's lives, being a heart surgeon or, or something. That's the best thing you can possibly do. Yeah, you're not you know, giving you them know, just a moment. You're giving them a lifetime of moments. You're giving them a lifetime of moments. Now you have this thing that costs like, you know, the cost of a latte at Starbucks. You can have it forever. Like your, your dinner can be slightly better every day forever. That's not a small thing. That's why I write these books, you know, because I would like you to have the same joy that I have in, in my life. And I drink tons of wine and cocktails and whatever else. You know me, I got like sake crazy ass sakes and whatever else. But like, if you're missing out on this, you say, Oh, I only listen to classical music. I'm like, you only listen to classical music. Oh my God. What a poor, what a poor, horrible life. I mean, I love classical music, but Jesus Christ, man, there's like all this wonderful stuff out there. Like, why would you live like that? 
that's the way I feel about about craft beer. You know, it's like I'm just showing you a new thing to like so that your life can be better. That's all. Well, I can't wait for the day in the hopefully not too distant future where we can have a glass of wine and a cocktail and a glass of beer together. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, I just I just laid down some new turf on my thousand square foot roof, which I'm turning into like a roof garden. And I have had people over for, uh, you know, distance drinks. I have a whole protocol. You sit 10 feet apart outside in the breeze and torches. It's beautiful. So if you're in New York City, you know, sometime, come on over. I'll hit you, know, you up. You know, on over. Like, we can have drinks. No hugs, but drinks. You know, like, <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll seem perfectly human. It'll just be a little, you know, slightly weird around the edges. Dude, I appreciate you. And I'm so grateful for your time. And I, I love hearing what you're doing, man. It's awesome. Well, you know, wish me luck. And uh, if anybody comes to you and and asking questions, send them them my way. We uh, can't wait to talk to them. Thank you so much for tuning in and hope you'll join us again next week here on Weekly Specials. This show is produced by the Welcome Conference team, including Aaron Ginsberg, Anthony Rudolph, Sandra DiCapua, and Brian Canlis. And our music is courtesy of Aaron Raytier. Special thanks to our creative collaborators at Resi, and thank you to our longtime partners at American Express and Sam Pellegrino for their unwavering support. During a time when we're not able to come together in person, it's that support that allows us to connect with you here. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and to learn more about the Welcome Conference, visit welcomeconference.org or find us on Instagram at welcomeconference. It's the weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. The weekly.